0: Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Lawrence Freeman, a highly respected researcher, writer, and speaker on all things Africa. He's led a delegation of U.S. state legislators to Sudan to prove the slavery charges against the Khartoum government were fraudulent. He served as a member of AFRICOM's advisory committee and is vice chairman of the Lake Chad Basin Scientific Committee. He also teaches courses on the history of Africa. Thank you for joining uh, the podcast, Mr. Freeman. How are you doing and are you staying safe and healthy?
1: Yes, uh, so far so good. I've been vaccinated for several months and take the appropriate precautions. And during the COVID crisis last year and this year, I've uh, traveled to Africa many times. So everything seems to be going well as my health
0: conditions are concerned. Thank you very much for asking. All right. That's, that's good to hear. Uh, before, before I get to my first question, let me just remind uh, listeners, to please subscribe to the geopolitics and empire email list telegram channel and everywhere else as i'm being censored and as i'm doing this full-time now uh, your donations are not only appreciated but essential so uh, mr freeman I have been looking for an expert to discuss Ethiopia in particular and Africa in general and finally stumbled upon uh, your work. And I absolutely loved it. Just so listeners know, putting together this podcast is a lot of work. And sometimes it it can be hard to find quality guests and track them down. Uh, It was interesting to know that my recent uh, podcast guest, Matthew Arad, has regularly interviewed uh, yourself. Uh, So I tend to look at geopolitics through the lens of the great powers and empires to see You know, what the U.S., EU, China, Russia, Turkey, Gulf countries are doing in Africa, because for me, the great powers or empires are the major drivers of economics and politics in Africa. And the contests between themselves also greatly affect the turn of events. And I I think maybe perhaps you seem to agree uh, on some of my points. If I may, I'd like to read a quote from a recent article you published, quote, Following the liberation of African nations from the yoke of colonialism three score years ago, African leaders who fight to improve conditions of life on the continent always face opposition from within and without. There exists a financial political elite, perhaps identified as an oligarchy, who see Africa for its material resources and financial gain. They attempt to exploit nations through international finance, manipulated terms of trade and raw material prices controlled by the City of London-based commodity cartels. The key concerns of the neocolonialist financial institutions have always been if they can control the leadership of a country, a divide-and-conquer tactic is employed to weaken that nation war and chaos are the preferred fallback alternatives to losing command of the targeted nation, end quote. So perhaps if we could start by getting your overall view on Africa today uh, and through what lens you analyze the con- uh, content continent, and for example, uh, how you view the impact of these great power politics and oligarchic foreign financial interests.
1: Thank you very much for the introduction. Africa, perhaps more than any other continent, of course, Africa is a continent, has 54 Some dispute 55 nations. But as a continent, it's uh, unique because it was always begun, it began on the subject being subjected to uh, foreign powers. Uh, When the coast of Africa was first looked at by the Portuguese and later the Spanish in the 1400s, they were looking for gold. They didn't even think human beings existed below the Sahara Desert, and they found slaves. And so they ran a slave empire for several hundred years, which was then morphed into a colonial empire, where instead of slaves being the primary product of sale, it was raw materials and precious resources. And the African countries only started to become independent uh, in large scale in the 1960s, a few before that. Now, Ethiopia, which we'll discuss later on, is unique, and that it was never colonized. It defeated the Italian Empire, on the battleground in Adwa, uh, March 1st, 1898, or 96. So they don't have an independence day because they were never colonized. And uh, but Africa, during the 60s, became liberated, so to speak, politically, not much economically. And it's still been uh, under the control of international uh, financial elites who... Manipulate the continent primarily through financial means, but also uh, through political control and, and divide-and-conquer tactics. So it's hard to say that, uh, it would be hard to say that Africa really has any sovereign nations in it. There are na- there are nations that have partial sovereignty, but they don't have full economic sovereignty. They, they still depend on the international community, uh, not depend, but are still forced to depend on the international community to uh, operate and regulate their, their economies. Uh, South Africa, everybody knows had a political revolution and Nelson Mandela was elected president in 1994, but the economic policies in South Africa did not change. And in fact, the, the experiences they're having today and have had the last several years have been the result of continuing the same economic policies. And the, if, if you look at the colonial countries where the primarily Britain was number one, France was number two in terms of control in Africa in the 19th century. Uh, the Congo, the Belgian King, Leopold II had a very large country, the Congo, uh, and was perhaps the most brutal of all the imperialists. You had Germany, had some countries French, uh, we mentioned Portuguese, Spanish, but they divide up the country and rule through their colonial control. And the nations never had a chance to fully develop. As a result, all the policies that the colonial powers enforced, And recent, up until recently, the international financial forces in, in the world today made sure these countries didn't develop. They made sure they didn't have manufacturing sectors. They made sure they didn't have significant cross-country and transcontinental infrastructure projects. These two areas alone, manufacturing and infrastructure, are essential. sin kwan for the development of a nation, my country, the United States of America, achieved its great accomplishments because Alexander Hamilton insisted on these investments. So Africa today is very much underdeveloped, not overpopulated, but underdeveloped. Uh, they're dying literally and suffering from the lack of electricity, estimates of 100 to 130,000 megawatts of power for sub-Saharan Africa, which has almost a billion and a half people, is a killer. It's literally killing people. The lack of high-speed rail is killing people. The lack of hospitals, healthcare, All the things that normal nations would have, have been denied Africa in various ways. And therefore, what we're seeing today, we see some countries struggling, we see some efforts being made towards sovereignty, but overall, uh, without these massive investments, then you will not have real sovereignty, and the people of Africa will continue to die and suffer. It's not necessary, there is no objective reason for it, but the lack of investments in these areas is killing these countries, killing these people. The only significant change has been in the last 20 years, in the last 10 especially, that China's involvement prior to the Belt and Road and, and continuing from the Belt and Road, they're building infrastructure. Uh, President Bahari is building railroads in Nigeria like I've never seen before and had the pleasure of being on one last April. First time I've been on a train in the 30 some ideas I've been going to Africa. Uh, Ethiopia was working with China on, on infrastructure development. Kenya, all the countries, virtually throughout the whole continent. And for this reason, one of the main reasons, they've been under attack. And all the attacks on China's uh, Belt and Road projects are sheer propaganda. I've investigated every one of them. And reliable sources in the West. Also, refute these uh, attacks on China. So, China is building some infrastructure, but it's not enough. It's way too little. And therefore, we could easily have the United States, China, Russia, India, Turkey, Turkey involved, Japan, South Korea. All these countries who have some advantages could be simultaneously investing in Africa. And no one would be stepping on each other's toes. This would be great collaboration. The great dream of the 22nd century to um, to develop Africa would be a joint project of all the great powers. Africa needs 1,000 gigawatts, minimally. It needs 50,000 kilometers of high-speed rail, minimally. And then when you go into the number of schools and hospitals, the figures are staggering. So there's no shortage of areas for investment. It's a question of policy. The West does not have a policy for development. The last president who did in the United States was John F. Kennedy. Since then, there's no president who conceives in their mind a conception of development for Africa. And uh, China does have a development policy, and a few other countries do have a development policy. So this is uh, where we stand today, I'm always hopeful that my country uh, will adopt some of these better policies.
0: But until then, I have to be the voice that speaks out loudest and clearest on these issues. And that was one thing in researching your work. I mean, there's there's I just discovered you. So I'm going to be spending a lot of time going through your work. And I hope listeners uh, do as well. And I I would agree with you that the key is uh, infrastructure, uh, basic infrastructure. I've lived in the U.S., uh, Europe, Latin America, Central Asia. And. You know, I, I would totally agree, you know, electricity, clean water, rail, transport. Um, so uh, I don't know if you have any other comment um, to add on infrastructure. Like, would you say that that's the key for uh, Africa?
1: I, I believe that it is. I mean, every trip I make to Africa every year becomes clearer to me that this is the number one priority. I mean, I've been I've stayed with people who are not poor and they can't get Electricity, 24-7. They can't run their air conditioners at night. These are not poor people. In fact, all of Africa, if at night, the only thing you hear is the hum of people's private personal generators, which uh, keep their houses' uh, lights on, but are actually not powerful enough to run air conditioning and freezers. This is an abomination. I mean, we're in the 21st century, and this is... Uh, Completely unacceptable, politically, morally, economically. And we if we don't do this, all the human rights groups, uh, those people who are sincere and those people not so sincere, and all the NGOs and all the resolutions from the United Nations, uh, um, the development proposals they have for 10 years, 15 years, all of this is a fraud if it doesn't include building electricity now. Massively, and not not uh, using sunlight, but using the most advanced means of nuclear energy and other forms of energy, they fall short of their interest and sincerity in Africa if they refuse to put it. The number one human right is the right to development, and if you don't fight for that right, then your motives and
0: the actions have to be questioned. And as you mentioned previously, so there are these interests that. are deliberately acting to prevent Africa from developing their infrastructure and and in general developing. Before getting into uh, Ethiopia, I think it's worth getting your take on what happened to Gaddafi and and Libya, since you wrote in a recent article as well that the same cast of characters who destroyed Libya are uh, attempting to undermine Ethiopia today with their fake and hollow cries for democracy, rule of law, uh, and human rights. What's your take on what Libya and Gaddafi represented. Um, I remember I, uh, reading that they had like uh, Gaddafi's Libya had the best health care in in all of Africa and, and things such as this. And so, you know, what's your take on what Libya represented and what happened to it?
1: Uh, President Gaddafi, as most leaders are, was a mixed bag, as we say. I had my disagreements with him when he was arming parts of the four. I was very active in Sudan for a period of ten to fifteen years on the issue of the four and opposing the separation of the country. And those things he did were not helpful, flooding certain areas with guns. On the other hand, he was supporting the idea of an African uh, development bank that would focus on infrastructure. I found out only the recent, maybe three years ago, that President Gaddafi supported TransAqua, which is a project I've been promoting for a quarter of a century, to uh, recharge Lake Chad and uh, stop the destruction of the Lake Chad Basin. And he was a supporter of that. Uh, So he had some very positive sides to his outlook and he was trying to to unify Africa in his own way, not not probably the way I would do it. And he was uh, taken out. And don't forget, he was a very close ally of uh, Tony Blair and others. And uh, I'm reminded if your readers want to stretch out their, their, their interest, Look at the uh, op-ed by uh, Tony Blair, I think it was in the Saturday or uh, Sunday, maybe Saturday, uh, London uh, Sunday Times, where he's attacking the pullout from Afghanistan because he said, we can't give up on the right of us in the developing sector to intervene when necessary to install democracy. So this is the guy who pushed the responsibility to protect in 1999, the International Criminal Court, which is another version of it. So you have these interests around the world who believe that their view and their their insistence that what they call democracy is not what you think democracy is. They think democracy is imposing their will and their interest on the country. And even though they got Gaddafi to give up nuclear weapons, that was not good enough. If you look at the effects of what happened, and in October will be now a 10 year anniversary of the overthrow of Qadhafi. The destruction that has taken place is unbelievable, beyond belief. First of all, Libya has been a failed state for 10 years. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africans have been enslaved and have died in Libya on their way across, trying to get across the Mediterranean. When the government was overthrown, the Tuaregs and others raided the deposition uh, the um, warehouses where the weapons and munitions were kept, put them in their pickup trucks, rode across the desert. Boko Haram expanded, ISIS expanded, Al-Qaeda expanded. And it's still, the Sahel is still ungovernable today. And we can put the blame of that on the French government, I believe it was Sarkozy who was in power then, and the great liberal Obama and his great cast of liberals around him, which includes people in office today, President Biden, Samantha Powers, Gail Smith, Susan Rice, these were the people among others who strongly advocated. possibly Samantha Powers was the most vociferous in demanding military action against Gaddafi, according to the memoirs of Robert Gates. And these people do not really believe in what democracy is to you and I. Their view is a dictatorship of their policies. And they go under the guise of, the, of democracy. And like Tony Blair said uh, over the weekend, this is our right. We have to intervene. So the sovereignty in Africa is completely ignored. In fact, many of the so-called do-good organizations, I they call them, they violate sovereignty all the time in Africa. They don't get visas. To, uh, many of these people, when they were trying to overthrow the government in Sudan, they sneaked across the border from Chad, they don't respect these countries as nations for me sovereignty is fundamental it's a concept that has become a reality you cannot run a nation and a civilization cannot progress from one generation to the next without a sovereign nation state and that is essential for survival of africa along with investments in infrastructure both of these issues Sovereignty and economic development are on the top of my list uh, of things I support in Africa that unfortunately my country, the United States, uh, opposes at the moment.
0: Yeah, and I w- I'm, as an American myself, I would agree with you. And that's one of the things that's bothered me the most is as I came to learn about the realities of American empire and U.S. foreign policy. Uh, you know, I was a Peace Corps uh, in, Mong- in Mongolia, and I-, I lived recently in Kazakhstan, and, <laughs> and I learned of um, how the U.S. used NGOs, you know, the U.S. use NGOs like National Endowment for Democracy and others to overthrow countries that want to retain their sovereignty, and that's been the big issue for me. I, as an American, get angry to see my country overthrowing other countries and and getting rid of the, their own uh, sovereignty. Um, unfortunately, I, I must admit I have neglected Africa in my own study and on this podcast, but I do hope to change that. So my knowledge of what is happening currently in ethiopia is lacking and limited so mr freeman if you could help us understand you know what's happening in ethiopia now and you know who are the real players what is the true source or root uh, of the conflict
1: yeah this uh it's a long story i mean people go to my website I have a lot of history on ethiopia at, uh, lawrence freeman com. but i'll summarize some of the key points of this because uh Right now, the West is behaving uh, in a way that is going to actually undermine, is attempting to undermine the existence of Ethiopia and create instability in the Horn of Africa, which, if you look on your map, is the eastern section of Kenya, Ethiopia, Somalia, Eritrea, possibly Sudan. Yes. This area, in this area of the world, Ethiopia has been the most stable ally of the United States for the last 30 years. And now, uh, it started under the Trump administration, and it's actually gotten worse <laughs> under the Biden administration. They're undermining the existence of the nation state of Ethiopia. They, I mean, Ethiopia has an absolute fascinating history. It, it goes back 3,000 years. so it's one of the oldest civilizations in the world, just like China is and the Persian. And in the recent history, I feel, let's say, started in 1896 when they defeated the Italian army on the battle in uh, Adwa, uh, they became the symbol of black nationalism, black pride and freedom for every uh, uh, African-American and African in the world because they defeated the Europeans. And the the Europeans went nuts. I read the headlines of the European papers at that time. They were scared because they never thought that these low-level savages as they thought they were could defeat a modern army. And because of this, Ethiopia has a certain mindset, I would call it, that is different than I've seen in other African nations. And they take on bold, uh, uh, bold actions. They have a vision that goes beyond the next day uh, in terms of uh, practicality. And I think this comes from their history. They, back in 2011, started the process of building this thing called the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, GERD. And it's been a long process. Uh, they paid for it themselves. They didn't want to be beholden to anyone. They raised $5 billion from their own people. And they're still raising money for it. And they decided that this is what they they have to do for their, for their country. And they're doing it. And uh, they're being attacked for it. Because it is probably the leading development policy in Africa today, along with their railroad, which they built, which started Operation 2016 uh, from Addis Ababa to Djibouti, which broke the landlocked control of Ethiopia. I was on that train when it opened in, in 2016. Now they have the dam, which will produce two, 6,200 megawatts. Which is not enough from my standpoint, but it's the biggest increase in electricity on, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and they're going to they're building light manufacturing plants. So they're actually, in their own way, forging ahead with a, a new model, a new paradigm for Africa. And this is what is being opposed by certain political financial elites. They have a very uh, uh, difficult history. They, the Emperor Haile Selassie was overthrown uh, after he returned to Ethiopia after the invasion of uh, Mussolini for five years. He was then He resumed power in forty-five. He was then overthrown in nineteen seventy-four by what I would call fascist Marxist group, the Dirge. They destroyed and ruled the country for seventeen years, and so a coalition of forces came together to overthrow the dirge in, in 1991. But they made concessions in their constitution to appease the various groups. So they set up a constitution, which I read, and it's, it's flawed because it it's establishes the rights of peoples and nationalities to be separate from the actual concept of an Ethiopian identity. Therefore, they now have 10 regions. The newest one just came into formation last year. 10 regions, but they're all governed by 10 ethnicities. So it's even worse than the Democrat, and Republican Party in our country. And these ethnicities uh, have a problem because they don't understand that the, the collection of ethnicities does not make up a nation state, as President Lincoln understood. And this was a whole battle in the United States in the 1820s where states thought they could nullify the United States law of the Constitution, the Constitution is not a collection. It is a, a policy of the government, of the nation state. And uh, when Abi came in, Prime Minister Abi Akbar, he decided to change things. And he formed a party, the Prosperity Party, which is a non-ethnic based party. This is when I knew that this guy had some different ideas. And I began to look at his uh, policies more carefully because he was going against the grain. He dissolved the coalition of ethnic parties, and he established the prosperity party, which is non-ethnic-based, even though he comes from the largest ethnic group, the Roma. Uh, And this challenged the existing rule in Ethiopia, which at that point had been controlled by the TPLF, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. And they violated the law, and they attacked a military outpost in Tigray, in the city of Mecca, the capital, and murdered soldiers overnight and began their drive for independence. And abiy Akhne responded, as I believe Abraham Lincoln did, and other presidents should do, which is militarily responded. The unfortunate thing is that the West, uh, either through a lack of vision or stupidity or conscious intent, began supporting the rebels as if he would support the Confederacy against Lincoln. And they began undermining the prime minister and his party and his government consistently up until very recently. There's only been a slight change in the last week. And this encouraged the ethnic groupings to move even more aggressively to dismember the country. So the country needs to be held together. And then, as I've discussed, and they may be doing this, I read an article the other day about a dialogue, a national dialogue. It's what I suggested over several broadcast I did in Ethiopia, a national dialogue which discusses the unique conception of the nation-state and Ethiopian citizenry as opposed to ethnic control. Because my view is that every human being is born with the capacity and potential of creative thought. That makes us all far more similar than dissimilar. Our culture, what piece of dirt we grew up on, these things are not unimportant traditions are how their role but they do not define us we are defined as creative homo sapiens sapiens wise wise men and therefore the nation develops that quality without uh, eliminating ethnicity but ethnicity uh is a sub feature of a culture and a tradition It's not a defining feature of a, who you are as a human being and the west could care less about this, even in our own country. You know, in the United States, they don't value human beings. And uh, this is the kind of dialogue I hope Ethiopia has, uh, which I saw was going to be scheduled for September. They had a successful, if restricted, election in June 21st. I was there in Ethiopia for it. And they've now filled the second portion of their dam, which may be producing electricity before the end of this year. But as long as they've got this struggle going on with the TPLF and now the Oromo Liberation Army, OLA, it's dragging them down and retarding uh, their development. I think if we can get past this, which is a lot of work, then Ethiopia will actually surprise Africa with some more
0: bold initiatives. So you kind of read my mind. That was my next question touching on uh, the Western support, whether inadvertent um, or intentional of opposition, you know, sp- you mentioned Ethiopia, but we've seen it all over the place. This reminds me of an interview I did some years ago with MI5 whistleblower, uh, Annie Mashan So she worked at MI5. And one of the, one of the reasons she, she like freaked out and, and quit and decided to blow the whistle was she discovered that MI5 had given uh, something like 100,000 pounds to Al Qaeda to carry out a terrorist attack to uh, attempt to assassinate uh, Gaddafi. And so she's there thinking, wait, we're supposed to be fighting against, uh, you know, jihadis and al-Qaeda. But here we are su- supporting them. And, you know, later we, we've seen come out Michael Flynn from the Defense Intelligence Agency and other um, documents. You, you know, we've supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the 80s. And in Syria, we're support- supporting, you know, ISIS, <laughs> rebels, uh, jihadis. And so there's this trend of the West uh, in the MENA region supporting rebels opposition groups extremists jihadis insurrection groups who are used to overthrow governments that they don't like such as we saw in libya and syria and elsewhere and so in general i mean briefly what what are your thoughts on this tactic uh
1: what you've got is you got a multi-layered problem with the west and let us i know the united states best but the same discussion could apply to the european nations first of all you have uneducated Elected officials in Congress and the Senate, which is not surprising because our whole culture in the United States has been dumbed down over the last uh, 60 years, about. And therefore, the people we represent also have that same defect. Therefore, you have very, very few, maybe I can count them on one hand, of congressmen and senators who have any in depth knowledge of any country in Africa, much less Ethiopia they will go along whether it's ever pushed. So you have a level of ignorance to begin with. Now you add on to that the fact that you do have people who want to impose their agenda on countries in the rest of the world. I, I, I call it the liberal democracy dictatorship. And that'll confuse people because there's the contrary terms in there. But that's the only way to look at it. And, and Tony Blair might be the single best living example of this policy. and. There are people in the United States who get dragged into this, such as President Obama, who I thought did a very poor job in Africa, as well as not a very good job in the United States. And he went along with this policy very aggressively. And he had had people in his administration who were more hardcore than he was, who pushed him along. So Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State during the time of the overthrow of Gaddafi, I believe. Is either Hillary or or Kerry, I forget which one. And you have the same problem today. Does President Biden actually know what's going on in Ethiopia and Africa? I would suspect not. I don't want to uh, imply knowledge to him he doesn't have. That would not be unusual because most presidents don't really involve themselves in Africa at all. And if they do, it's usually photo ops, but there's not even a policy in Africa, usually until the second year of the presidency. However, someone like Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, I think is is more knowledgeable what he's doing, and he's going along with this liberal democracy dictatorship policy, which uh, up until the last week or 10 days, there had been no criticism of the TPLF, only President Abiy Ahmed and the government. This has just started to change primarily because a lot of us have been screaming about it, but also uh, actions on the ground where the TPLF has now joined with the Oromo Liberation Army, both labeled as terrorist groups inside Ethiopia. And they had declared war on the government. And they, they say, we, we want to become independent states and we want over to overthrow the government in Addis Ababa, the capital. That's hard to ignore. Uh, the fact that the TPLF has also gone into Lalabella Probably the most one of the most religious uh, areas, sacred ground in all of Africa. I had a chance to visit it. It goes back to the 1100s, where they built these rock churches, hewn uh, out of rock, to bring the New Bethlehem to Africa in the 1100s. They're quite extraordinary, and the TPLF was in that area. The TPF has expanded into another region called Afar, so they're militarily expanding. They're being accused of massacres, all kinds of accusations, uh, some of which I think are probably true. But this is now for some people in Washington to at least say, yes, uh, the TPLF is also a problem. But by forcing the uh, prime minister who was elected, he was elected the head of the country. You may not like it. Uh, I don't like every president that my country elects, but that's law. They undermine him by giving support to the TPLF, and by saying you have to meet with them and settle your dispute. Well, I remind people in my written articles that uh, for the four years, but don't forget the, the American Civil War started on April 12th, 1861, when the Confederacy attacked Fort Sumter. And then that's when a call to arms went out by President Lincoln. So that was the first bullet started flying then. And for four years, Hundreds of thousands of people died, soldiers died, maybe up to three-quarters of a million, they say. And people were always telling President Lincoln, you have to negotiate and negotiate. He would say, he would never recognize them except as rebels. And he often said, the only negotiations that will have is their, under, their unconditional surrender. Yet the West was pressuring and cutting off 130 $150, 180000000 million of development money that they normally would give to Ethiopia. And this is very destructive. And right now, Ethiopia is in danger. Uh, I don't think, I'm not predicting anything's going to happen it's the next day, but it's a very um, difficult situation for a young country, a country that has just freed itself from the dirge only 30 years ago, and yet they're not getting support and they're not getting help. And, and therefore, on multiple, le- multiple, multiple levels, the West is consciously, unconsciously ignorant, or otherwise contributing to the potential overthrow of a nation, which would then have an absolutely destructive effect in the Horn of Africa and in Africa. I don't know if these people are as insane or stupid as they were with overthrowing Gaddafi, but this would be worse if you can imagine it. Now, Obama, many years later, apologized and said this was the worst act I ever took. On the other hand, why did he take it? I mean, I had no access to government policy, and I, I knew it was going to be a disaster. Surely, some people around him knew and intentionally did it anyway. Do we have people who are intentionally trying to break up Ethiopia? I would suggest we do. Whether the president knows that, I would be reluctant to say so.
0: I would just mention uh, when I used to teach uh, university courses here in Mexico, I would use this primary source documents when we talked about the subject. We have uh, emails that were released, declassified uh, Clinton emails from the State Department. I think 2011, where there was an email to Hillary Clinton that discussed um, the silver, the mass of silver and and gold and, and and oil in 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 Libya. So that was a message to Hillary Clinton, not from. But you know that just that 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 says a lot. Uh, I wanted to get your further thoughts on on China's presence in Africa. I think you've written that the charge of this debt trap uh, diplomacy of the belt and road is is false. Um we've seen China build I think so far one military base in in Djibouti. They're building ports um that can double as military bases. So just your thought on China's presence um militari- militarily with the belt and road uh in general, I know in the past there were charges of the the surveillance supposedly that China's um, equipment that was being installed in, in embassies in in Africa were uh, surveilling. But uh, and you've also just mentioned that it's not an, the Belt and Road infrastructure is is not uh, enough. So just your general thought on China and Africa.
1: Well, I think it starts with the, really the, the title of your of your program. You had this insane destructive disease called geopolitics, which is actually, it's my recollection, well, recent history goes back to the, the British in the 1600s. I think it existed much earlier than that. And then this view, they've had that view that the world is fixed. It won't grow. And therefore, the only thing that country, the real interest of nations, which they mean empires, is, do you are you on top or are you in the bottom? Do you have your foot on the other guy's throat, or does he have his foot on your throat? And it's called a fixed sum game. Uh, I mean, many, many people have written about it in geopolitics and they impose that disease worldview on reality. And therefore, instead of seeing the world as a developing concept, which it is, I mean, that the universe was created to develop and grow. And mankind was created to intervene through his creativity to help the process of growth and development. And the whole history of civilization, going back, let's say, to the first signs of, of mankind three, four million years ago, proves this is the case. There's no, this, there's no there's no antagonism between mankind and the universe. There is a coherence, as Leibniz said, a, a pre-established harmony. Therefore, to have a view that the universe is fixed immediately sets up a number of axioms that you then are going to follow because you have to have control of the economy. You have to have control of finances. You have to have control of resources. You have to have control of countries. And this perverted worldview is what they impose on living nations. So they see China, they don't see that China is actually doing something positive that the West has refused to do and i might add here because i've been i've been at this for 30 years that the african leaders were very clear to me over a long period of time and today they would want the united states to do it in some cases they would prefer the united states and the west but they won't do it are they supposed to sit there and not accept contracts to build ports to build power plants to build railroads i mean nigeria had no railroads until they allied with china I'm I'm building billions, several billion dollars of investment in railroads. This is what nations should do. This is what the United States should be doing. We haven't done it since John F. Kennedy was in alliance with Kwame Nkrumah to build electricity in Ghana. And since then, we've not had any relationship like that. China comes along doing something useful, and the geopolitical, uh, nut jobs come out and say, oh, no, no, we have to stop China. We have to stop China. We have to stop China. And the Democrats and Republicans are both equally horrible on this question. When Bolton, John Bolton became the national security advisor for Trump, he delivered a policy paper on Africa to the Heritage Foundation. And I think 18 times he attacked China and the Belt and Road in a policy on Africa because they can't conceive That there is a commonality of interest between China as a nation and these independent African nations, just as there would be a commonality of interest between the United States and China if we had a development policy. And the information on China is clear. Anyone who pushes the line that they're bankrupting African nations, they're driving them into debt, they're employing their own labor just chooses to lie because you have Western uh, companies, McKinsey, uh, uh, McKinsey Consulting Company, they came out with a very detailed analysis. 89% of the labor employed was employed from indigenous uh, people in the, in those nations. Uh, you have the Cary Research Center, China Africa Research Institute is a branch of John Hopkins in Washington DC, SAIS strategic uh, advanced international studies, and they have they have examined every single loan. Not one Chinese asset. Not once have the Chinese seized an African asset. Not once has China put the country into bankruptcy. Not once have they seized control. It's not one out of 3,000 loans. And the only case that is disputed is, is the case in Indonesia, which is very complicated. So the, the evidence is clear. Yet people repeat this, repeat this, repeat this. Elected officials repeat it. Democrats repeat it. And they can read the same articles I read and write, and, and write but they choose to just lie because of propaganda. China has to be opposed because it is, these, it is usurping the potential of the West to be the dominant power. And that's the reason they're opposed. It has nothing to do with Africa. It has nothing to do with the content of the policy. We cannot let China become a major political force, more powerful than us in their geopolitical diseased outlook. And if, if we could change that view, we could change a lot. We could end poverty in Africa. I'm convinced we can. We can end hunger if we could actually get rid of the geopolitical doctrine and the mentality of thinking that dominates the Congress, dominates Washington, dominates the think tanks. And it's all wrong. And uh, it doesn't represent America. It doesn't represent me. It doesn't represent America. And uh, therefore, I have to stand up for what America really is and should be doing in Africa
0: as opposed to our elected officials. I just had one uh, final question. You've uh, mentioned already different ways of developing uh, rail dams, uh, nuclear power. Um, I'm th- th- This topic has been curious for me. I, I don't know how well um, you know it, but the Economic Community of West African States or ECOWAS has discussed creating a common monetary currency by as soon as 2024. This sounds very much like the supranational model of the EU and the euro. Uh, do you have any thoughts on such a project, whether it's a good idea or not?
1: Uh, I'm not a big fan. I can I know what the Africans are trying to do. They have now set up the African Continental Free Trade Alliance. That went into existence in January of this year. What they're trying to do is to take down the barriers between trade inside African nations and individuals in African nations. You may not know this, but only 15% of Africa trade is conducted with other African countries, 85% is conducted with the rest of the world. And that's partly because of lack of infrastructure, but other barriers. So there are monetary barriers, there are passport barriers. They're trying to break all that down and create a common market type approach of what is now 1.5 billion people, but by 2050 it could be 2.5 billion people. So that's the that direction they want to go. Uh the other area that the ECOWAS, I think the currency they talk about, they would call the ECO, if I'm not mistaken. But the other problem that you that they're looking at and looking at that currency is you've got the CIFA, which is the French franc, which 14 African countries that were formerly under the French empire use this African French franc with the money controlled by the banks in Paris. And this is abs- this is a modern form of imperialism. So how do you get rid of that control by that currency? That's another thought about some of the people who are pushing the other currency. My view tends to direction of nation states with their own control of their own currency and their own credit. I understand what some people are trying to do and what the thoughts are behind it, but I believe in sovereignty very, very strongly. Uh, I probably have on this level and probably in disagreement with many Pan-Africanists who believe the whole continent should be united in one country. Kwame Nkrumah, who is the father of Pan-Africanism, you read his books, uh, he was in the United States during the Roosevelt administration being a student at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, which I I taught a class there once. And he absorbed a lot of what Roosevelt was doing. And when he, he wrote a book, when he came out back to to Ghana, and he talked about the need for infrastructure, electricity, where this is 1960. He was, that thinking was absolutely correct. The idea that Africa should become one block or one country, I'm not a big supporter of that because I I don't think that's going to work. But the the underlying concepts behind some of the stuff that the leader of Pan-Africanism, Kwame Nkrumah, put forward are sound economic principles. He actually understood That these nations now had to be free from the West and could develop their country. And there are other writers. Uh, Great Senegalese uh, intellect, Chik Diop, wrote a book in the 1960s talking not only about utilizing the great water of the Congo River, but the need for nuclear energy, 1960, and setting up nuclear energy engineering centers in Africa to learn how to operate nuclear energy. Now, of course, there's only two. Nuclear energy plants in Africa, they're in South Africa, built during the Africana regime. But there are 16 or 17 countries that are, have certain study proposals and projects for nuclear energy. But think about the 1950s and 60s, this was being written about as an alternative to being controlled by the foreigners. So Africa is struggling to get independent, but Unfortunately, I would say it's still. Neocolonialism is everywhere in Africa. I mean, the French is one form. I spent a couple of weeks in Cote d'Ivoire. I got a very good, clear view of how the French operate. On the British, it's another side. And the U.S. doesn't really have a colonial, never had a colonial interest in Africa, but we have a faction of people, an oligarchical faction in the U.S. establishment that is supporting these same policies, even though historically we never had a colony in Africa, which is a good thing.
0: Yeah, uh, and uh, going back on the currency issue, I, I, I agree with you. I, I'm also a Croatian citizen, and uh, our country, we're part of the EU, and we're next on the chopping block to give up our uh, national currency of the Croatian kuna and accept the euro. And I'm, I'm not, and I think other people are, are not happy with that. But I mean, just that's just the way the cookie is crumbling. Um, any final thought for us?
1: Well, I would say this: that um, there's a lot of very difficult conditions in Africa, we have millions of uh, young children die before the age of five, mainly from all curable diseases, respiratory diseases, diarrhea, et cetera. These problems can be solved. Uh, There is no reason for hunger. Africa has the largest amount of arable, uncultivated arable land in the world. I've been all over the continent or parts of sub saharan Africa. It's very fertile. There is no objective policy. My view, and I'm now 70, I'm hoping that in my lifetime we will end poverty and hunger in Africa. I don't, there's no objective reason for it. And therefore, we should call on all people of goodwill in the world and inside Africa to make a brute force commitment to develop the infrastructure that will allow people to have a standard of living. They, they will be be able to bring home a paycheck, have a house so their children are not on the streets on this cancerous informal economy, which is disgusting, but going to school, learning a trade. If we built these railroads and we built these dams and we built these nuclear power plants, we would be employing tens, tens, hundreds of millions of young people, training them in skills, don't forget, in 2050, the continent is going to have two and a half billion people. One billion will be young people. Now, we don't employ them with these great projects now. Uh, what are we going to do 20 years from now? China is doing the right thing. They could be doing more, uh, but they're in the right direction. There's a few other countries that are making some investments, but we need a lot more. And I'm hopeful that we can get enough wise people together in the West and around the world that will join together and say our commitment is to eliminate poverty and hunger in the African continent. And we will do that as a collaboration of peoples and nations. And we
0: will all
1: go to heaven because we have done something valuable for the human race.
0: All right. Uh- your website is World dot com, and you're on Twitter at lfreeman s africa. Uh, is there any other website or project we should know about?
1: Well, I have a, I have a, um, I have a Facebook, which I had to choose my Italian name because someone took my other name, so it's it's called Lorenzo Freeman, and that's my Facebook. Uh, my Twitter is extremely active; it's it's growing uh, in leaps and bounds. Uh, so anyone who wants to can can check it out and uh, let's all get together and use our brains to actually do something constructive in this world
0: all right i'll leave the links in the description so people can easily uh, find you uh, and again if listeners want to know more about africa lawrence freeman's work is something you will surely want to bookmark uh, and go through subscribe to his website to get uh, each article I, I just did that and thank you lawrence for being on geopolitics and empire. Shukran Gazelian, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored, YouTube has deleted some of our videos and we currently have one strike, Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app to help keep this podcast alive leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.